Welcome to Women in Chemicals, Women of the Week. I'm Amelia. And I'm Kylie, and we're joined today by Dr. Akemi Oka, Head of Supply Chain and Sustainability Resources at the Independent Beauty Association. Today's episode is sponsored by Axon Underwriting. Axon Underwriting Services, LLC, was formed in 2013 by underwriting and brokerage experts in order to raise the bar in business insurance performance. Offering a highly efficient program administrator, MGA platform, and insurance services, Axon provides its brokerage partners the ability to expand current offerings. Our extensive understanding of industry-specific exposures enables us to create comprehensive coverage programs and solutions for targeted industries. Axon underwrites and distributes products backed by the financial strength of domestic A-rated carriers and as a cover holder for Lloyd's of London. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. And Akemi, thanks so much for your time today. We're really excited to be speaking with you. Um, We love to kick these uh, interviews off by allowing you the chance to introduce yourself to our community, share a little bit of your background with us and how you got into your current position, please. Sure. Thank you. And and thank you very much for uh, Women in Chemicals um, to invite me to to speak at the uh, Women of the Week podcast. It's uh, very exciting. Uh, for me uh, to address uh, such a group of, of strong and talented women. Um, so my name is uh, Akemi Oka. Uh, I actually am a chemist by training, so I have a PhD in chemistry, um, but I'm currently uh, heading up uh, the, the uh, programming at um, the Independent Beauty Association for Supply Chain and Sustainability Resources. It's a, a nonprofit trade association that serves the small to medium-sized businesses in and around the beauty sector. Uh, but my background really is 20 years, over 20 years now, uh, in CPG. So I started my career um, as a chemist at Clorox. I was there for uh, 12 years. And I did about half of the time there, I, I did uh, product development-related work. And the second half of the time, I was in uh, product supply. Um, I then moved to uh, Method and worked for Method for about six years um, and did exactly the opposite. I started their direct procurement program, and then I ended up running their formulation and fragrance teams. Um, And then uh, right before I joined IBA, I was at uh, J.R. Watkins. So I was the VP of uh, product over at J.R. Watkins. And so anything related to product uh, fell into my purview. So um, so I've largely worked in for-profit industry, starting at very small to uh, very large to, to moving to small companies. And now I'm, I'm um, sort of testing the waters in the nonprofit sector, which has actually been really, really fun and exciting. Absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing your background. So we'll dig a little bit into some of your commentary and, and some of your career journey and some of these questions. The first of which being um, your commentary a little bit around how you started with for-profit large organizations, and now you are with nonprofit smaller organizations. So um, can you tell us some of the key differences that you might have noticed or experienced in those transitions from the larger for-profit to that smaller nonprofit? Absolutely. I mean, I I think it was, I'm really grateful that I was able to start my career with a, a company like Clorox. It's a terrific company. And there's something to be said for working for a really large well-established organization in terms of training, development, um, and understanding sort of um, best practices in terms of uh, whatever function you're in. So whether that's in, in my case, in product development, or as I moved into product supply, I mean, you, you really have a, um, 
you know, a, a strong um, base, you know, from which to uh, leverage, you know, for future experiences. So I, I was, um, you know, very fortunate, I think, to have gotten the kind of product development training, procurement training, um, and also be exposed to the kind of leaders um, at the organization. Um, and so, uh, you know, as I moved to small organizations and then moved to, uh, for example, Method, uh, for me, that was really an interesting move because it was a much smaller organization, but still played in the same spaces. So what I was able to do is take what I knew to be best practices, you know, in the industry around CPG and bring them to bear um, at method. But um, things move faster at a small company. Decisions are made faster at a small company. Um, and, you know, often there's not as much um resource availability, right? To vet a whole lot of things, test a whole lot of things. Um, and so I think the other value in sort of bringing the best practices from a large company to the smaller company was knowing what uh, is critical and what do we absolutely need to do? And then what are things that are sort of nice to haves and it would maybe give us a little mm. bit more color around the edges, but it doesn't change the fundamental decision at hand, right? So uh, so that was actually really helpful. And then moving to J.R. Watkins, where we, we we used to joke that we were a 150-year-old startup um, because we were kind of a carve-out of, of an, an organization that had been around for a long time and and really sort of uh, were, were then a private equity-backed uh, organization based, based uh, in Oakland. Um, and that was, I think we had less than 20 people there. So I went to an even smaller organization and again, you know, bringing not just the learnings from Clorox and like, what would I do in those situations, but understanding how method had to make decisions. Mm -hmm. I'm now at an even faster moving organization and an even, you know, fewer resources, smaller team. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I think that that helped to shape an understanding around like what is absolutely critical and like what you can, um, what also what you can do internally and what you need to leverage externally, you know, to, to get projects done. Um, and so then moving to IBA, which was a little bit of a happenstance, um, I hadn't intended to do it, but, um, but was contacted by uh, one of the folks on the board, Don Fry, who's actually now uh, the, the president and CEO of the organization. Um, he was like, hey, we're starting up this program and uh, really like it if you could you could help with this. Uh, and I found it fascinating because for the first time I could take all of this knowledge that I have about big to medium sized to small companies and bring it to bear to help a lot of companies in this space. Right. So when you're working for a for profit for one company, you're really focused on the goals and objectives of that one organization. But with. IBA, we're really trying to provide education for small to medium-sized business. And these are like founders who have no understanding of the industry whatsoever to companies that have an established business and, and are scaling and growing. And, and they have really different needs. Uh, we also were doing advocacy work. And this is something I hadn't necessarily been part of at any of the organizations prior, but there's a tremendous amount of state and federal legislation that, uh, particularly in the last year or so, has really ramped up um, and, and is affecting the beauty industry. Certainly, um, 
the the passage of the Modernization of Cosmetics Act, <laughs> Regulatory Act, like that just happened with the omnibus bill uh, in December is a big one. You know, the Green Guides um, uh, sort of update that that uh, that has kind of a, a public comment request out right now is big for the industry, um, and there's a tremendous amount of um, I'll say like recycling plastic packaging legislation that's affecting, um, you know, the CPG industry and, and to some degree, the, the chemical industry at large. So yeah. that um, government aspect and, and that involvement has been super interesting. Uh, and then just, you know, continuing to drive networking and going from Clorox to Method to Watkins to IBA means that the, the, range of people that I've come across both as a developer and as a procurement professional is is um is broad and I can bring that to bear as as part yeah. of this nonprofit. So it's been, it's been a great journey. So you mentioned this kind of progression of faster decisions with less resources. And I just can't help but think, so I work for a global company, 3M, and I can't help but kind of giggle a little because some of our like stereotypical commentary is, you know, it does take us a long time to implement or act on these huge initiatives, right? Because there is so many people involved. Um, And so to just like completely switch that mindset is so interesting to me, but I can't help but think or be curious to know what your perspective on this little resources, quick decisions. Do you think that that heightened your like creativity and your mindset to find creative solutions to support the needs that still exist for this smaller nonprofit organization? Yeah, I think that, I mean, you know, they, they say, you know, necessity breeds innovation, right? And so yeah. you do, as, as you have fewer and fewer resources, you do have to get more creative, you know, for sure. Um, you know, when we were developing products um, at, at walk-ins, you know, we really had to figure out how can we uh, leverage external relationships with suppliers? How can we find chemistries and uh, materials that were unique and interesting, but that, that that we could formulate with really quickly to bring to market? How can we drive awareness and um, and marketing with a very tiny budget, right? And so you get creative with like nano influencers, like these micro influencers sure. to like drive your your product uh, awareness. And it's been interesting going into the nonprofit space because I think that, um, you know, for me, it's sort of interesting, like nonprofits are companies like anything else. It's just that the way they think about revenue and the way they think about marketing, it's just a little bit different. And so some of what's been kind of fun actually is to look at how do we, how do, how, how is it, how can I take what I've learned um, you know, through working for these for-profit companies and apply it to the nonprofit space. And for us in particular, um, our constituency, we have about 600 member companies. They're all like these sort of indie brands, like small to medium-sized brands, you know, in the beauty space. And so they're all juggling all of this stuff all the time, right? And so one of the things that we're open to do for our members is we have a concierge service. They can call us and say, I've gotten questions like, how do I get a barcode, you know, to what is the regulatory labeling requirement for, you know, an an OTC topical, right? Like, so the the range of questions that we get um, is indicative of 
just the the uh, the sort of ecosystem around like these small mm-hmm. businesses and they have to make decisions they have to do things quickly and so often um myself and my counterpart uh Meredith Patilla like have been um you know able to answer a lot of these these questions because we have experience in the industry um, right but you know it's it's um it, there's always just like more to learn you just you have to just be like really open to like crazy ideas that come your way and and you know don't not dismiss it out of hand like think about yeah it I think that's great though that you even have this mindset that's been like breeded based on your experience to be open to accepting any crazy idea right sometimes there's this mindset where it's like wow that's way too pie in the sky put that on a shelf somewhere else but to have this mindset to just openly accept that and actually take time to consider that is really great. Um, Claire, Amelia, do you have any comments or questions? Akimi, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about some of the decision-making process that went into your switches between organizations. So Clorox to Method, Method to J.R. Watkins. It's J.R. Watkins, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then on to IBA, which is seemingly a huge pivot. Um, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about kind of how you made those decisions, what you weighed. Um, And then also, I would love to hear a little bit about working in CPG during COVID. I know that there was probably a lot of challenges. So two two questions, they're very different. So thank you. Happy to do so. You know, and there are two pivots I can talk about. So there's I did make one pivot within Clorox, within the time I was there, I made a pivot from R&D to product supply. And that was one choice, a conscious choice I made. I think there was a desire to have me to like continue to rise to the ranks in R&D. And I made a conscious choice fairly early in my career to move into the product supply organization. And some of that was because I wanted to understand another part of the business and in very large organizations, often you're siloed a bit, you know, so you don't really, you get some, some, you know, cross-functional teams, but you don't really understand what it is to sit inside another organi- another part of the organization. So that was a conscious decision. And I think it was actually really, really helpful for me because it helped me understand not just the development side, but the business side. So cost, supply, there's a different time frame too for those two functions. Like R and D is like much longer uh, time frame, and procurement is like things are happening right now in product supply. Like I remember having to like reroute like rail cars of, of like you know caustic stuff when I knew a hurricane was coming. So like there's just like this really different um, sort of mentality shift, and that helps because then when you're engaging other people of the organizations, you can speak their language. You also understand where the intersections are and you understand where the tension is. And that's been like super, super helpful um, as I've gone on to other parts of my career because I can speak enough of like, you know, a few different functions to to make sure that, um, you know, we are, you know, getting through any misunderstandings or miscommunications and, and working through those. Um, and then I think like the switch to like smaller companies, for me, it was just interesting because I think the other challenge when you're a larger company, it just, it takes longer to get to the top. And, and frankly, like Clorox is, is a great company. And so people are, you know, people in leadership, is, they don't move a lot because they're, they're good at what they do. And, um, you know, they're, they're working on multiple year plans. So um, I just thought like, if I wanted to, um, I think get 
higher up in the organization, but also have more span of control and more decision-making opportunity. I had to move to a smaller organization where my experience would actually be helpful to them. And so, you know, that was sort of the impetus for me to move to smaller companies was really to get more exposure to higher level decision-making, the kinds of strategic choices that a company needs to make. Um, and, you know, even going to walk-ins was, was even more interesting because um, then I had interaction with the board, right? So now at, at Clorox, like sometimes I would have interaction with, with the board, but not, not very often, right? So, um, you know, I, I definitely like interacted with senior leaders because we were dealing with money. And so the CEO and the COO wanted to know how we were spending that money. <laughs> but, you know, at, at the uh, at Watkins, it was just interesting because you're really dealing with a board of directors who's, who's um, you know, interested in all aspects of the business. And so you get exposure to how do I think about finance and how do I think about sales and how do I, how do all of these things tie together? So it's largely been driven by an, a, an interest in understanding more and, and having a little bit more control over decision-making. Um, and then definitely like working in CPG during COVID was crazy, especially because at the time I was at walk-ins and we made hand soap and we were launching like, and we had like some hand sanitizer products that were coming out. Like it was, uh, we could not get enough bottles, chemicals. It was crazy how quickly products sold out, especially hand soap, but we were rationing and having to allocate um, because we just, you just didn't have enough, you know, and you're trying to help everybody because everyone needs, um, you know, everyone needed the product. Um, but I've never, never seen anything that crazy before. Like, like we had people prepaying, no one prepays, you know, I'm in procurement, no one prepays. Um, but so it was, it was really, uh, an unprecedented time. And, um, you know, it's, it's been interesting to see the aftershocks of it all, too, because I think uh, it was a good time to move to IBA to some degree because they were, I think the board there was actually pretty prescient. Like, they were like, hey, there are these other areas that, you know, our members really need help with, you know, supply chain and sustainability. And I, I don't think they knew they were sitting on the cusp of this, like, crazy supply chain fiasco that was going on. And so I did so many panel discussions and talks and webinars around what was going on in the supply chain, you know, in the last, in the last year or so it's, it's been uh, pretty crazy. And now, you know, you can kind of still see the ripple effects, you know, like now the ports are back, but inventory is kind of a mess. So it's, it's really, uh, I don't know, it's, it's been interesting to, to watch. And, and since I'm in this sort of neutral position, like it's very interesting to kind of hear how different, uh, you know, strata in the in the uh, in the CPG landscape are sort of dealing with and handling all of these issues. Cool. Any other comments, Amelia and Clara, to that before I move to the next question? Okay, um, so I just want to open it up to make sure that we learn as much as we can from you, Akemi, for this question. I know we've addressed some bits and pieces of it, but um, we wanted to talk about what your experience was like moving into product supply from R&D. And my biggest takeaway from that um, was that it was largely driven by your interest in just wanting to know more about the organization and learning about how different 
functions essentially fit together in the larger picture. Um, wanting to know if there's any other big learnings that you wanted to share with the community tied to that pivot. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for women, particularly women who start out at sci- as scientists, I think I, I don't know that I realized there was this, this sort of business side that was available to you. And and I remember thinking like, oh, I kind of enjoy this and I kind of get it and I like it. And it's not that I didn't like being in the lab, but I was getting to a point where I was like, you know, I, I want to learn something different. I sort of get how to make a product at this point. And there are interesting technologies that come into play, but I started to be a little bit more interested on the the business side, right? And so I sort of slid into procurement through, Clarks at the time had a group called Technology Brokerage, which was their version of open innovation before open innovation became a thing. I, I, honestly, I think Clorox started this trend. And um, and it was really intriguing to me because I was learning how to do joint development agreements. I was learning how to do you know, evaluation option agreements. And, and so it was technology related and you needed to have a, an understanding of the chemistry to know that there was a, a, a benefit to be um, had, you know, from these technologies, but then reducing it to uh, a business agreement that was sort of palatable to both parties was, was very interesting to me. So I, I think that, um, you know, for women who are, interested in exploring, particularly if you're starting out in chemistry, I think like there are aspects to product supply, procurement, sourcing, um, you know, even like understanding the manufacturing environment are like really interesting places to go because you also get a better appreciation for this like broader ecosystem, (laughs) you know, around not just the product you're making, but all of those parts that go into it, right? So, uh, so for me, I, I think that, yes, I wanted to learn, but I, I think I also found like the business side to be interesting. And, and I think, um, you know, that I, don't know, I, I found it interesting because I was also learning a lot about all of the companies I was interacting with. Right. So mm-hmm. all of the suppliers that I was talking to and that um, in like different ways, too, because I'm like dealing with like different people. Uh, you know, within their organization, uh, particularly in a role like procurement, you get to see, you know, upstream development, you get to see their existing, um, you know, supply chain, uh, and delivery and logistics, and then you talk with the sales folks. And and so, um, so I think that that's another thing just to keep in mind, you know, if right. you're thinking about where else to go, um, especially with a chemistry background, uh, product supply is a good one. Yeah. And I'll speak for the other side of it. So I have procurement experience and no chemistry background. And I worked in specialty chemicals for procurement and you can still do that too. So um, you can come at it from all angles, which I think is really unique to hear both sides of it today. Yes, yes. So the next question I have for you, Akemi, is more tied to your, uh, your relationships and the priority you place on those. So um, during your time in the industry, you've been able to build and retain these relationships. And we've just been talking about some of those relationships you've enjoyed with your supply base and procurement. Um, this is important in the industry. So I think it'd be really great for us to hear any advice that you have tied to maintaining those relationships and even friendships within the industry over the years. Yeah, I, you know, I remember working with a supplier. Uh, this was when I was like a buyer at Clorox doing Chloralkali. And he, 
I remember him telling me at one point, he said, you know, people do business with people that they like, like just point blank. And it's funny because it's always sort of, I've always come back to that. It's, it's like a weird thing, but I, I think there are a lot of folks that feel, it's certainly in procurement, you can have these like real extremes where like people are just like very, um, you know, um, I don't, I don't know, adversarial maybe, you know, with the buyer and, and um, seller relationship. And I've never been that way. I thought, uh, you know, it's important to be firm, but fair. And if people understand why you're doing something on behalf of your company, um, they respect that. And then if you are a respectful person to others, then people want to come back and do business with you, right? So, so I've always made it a point to be, um, you know, fair, respectful, to always also look out for people who are um, reporting to me, right? Like not, not always sort of managing up either because I, you know, there's just so many people under you who are like really making the whole engine work. Um, and so I like to, to really make sure that I've got relationships like with suppliers, with leaders in the organization, and then with the folks on the ground who are making things happen. Because at the end of the day, when you're going to move the rail car, you know, from one place to another, yeah. it's me calling up the plant guy and being like, hey, so I've got this issue. Can you take in a couple yeah. more? And if they like you and you've been fair in the past, be like, yeah, I'll help you out. What do you Absolutely. Yeah. Versus oh. just constantly pounding on people when you really need a hand. People are like, hey, I wish I could help you, but, you know, and so... Right. Um, so I, I, I've always felt like it's really important to um, to maintain good relationships and, I, and not to burn bridges, no matter what mm -hmm. role I've taken. I definitely will also, uh, you know, if there's suppliers that I think really highly of or worked really well with or think they have great products, I can brought them on, you know, to other organizations I've been with. So from, a, you know, just like a sales standpoint, I think it's it's always good to make sure like you maintain contact. Um, and, and then the people I work with, like I continue to stay in touch with them. So you, you've got to make an effort, right? So whether it's just texting people every once in a while, getting together for dinner or drinks. And I recently read something, it might've been in the New York times, like, um, like it's, it, it would be good to set up. I think they called it something like the eight minute phone call. Like, so you reach out to someone um, maybe you haven't talked to in a while and just like, Hey, can, do you have time for, for a call just to catch up? And you set a time limit. So it doesn't go on forever. It's yeah. not short and awkward. And they were like, eight minutes is like a good time. Okay. And so you just have like a little eight minute phone call. It's like, that's actually a pretty good idea. And is something I, I kind of sort of do anyway. Like I just am okay. checking in on people that I've worked with and saying, how's, how's it going? And then uh, now that I'm at uh, IBA, it's been like really interesting because I've got like the the networking is kind of like crazy. And so there are all these people kind of coming at me and there's so many connections that I can see. And so I'm reaching out to people to make those kinds of and connections you wouldn't even like right. otherwise I like, wouldn't have. Um, and so, again, like just maintaining friendships, keeping in touch with people, you know, has been like super helpful. And then you're always top of mind when people are like, hey, I need something right. or I need an opinion or I have a job opening or whatever it is, you're, you're kind of top of mind. So. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of this commentary resides or resonates with me wholeheartedly and a lot of these experiences like the biggest one for me is during COVID when everyone needed everything all at the same time and you really needed to lean on those relationships otherwise you'd put yourself in a really tough spot and be a bit disappointed maybe in yourself and your relationship management skills um, had they not been able to prioritize you based on your relationship so yeah absolutely there's there's discretion and you want to be part of the consideration set when there's discretion right right Claire, Amelia, any comments? I really, oh, sorry. I just really love the commentary around being fair. I think uh, you've been in sales for, or at least in the commercial function for over eight years. And fair was something that came up a lot during the supply chain crisis. And the definition of fair was honestly a little bit different based on every single relationship as well. So I think that having good relationships and being fair, like they're almost um, two concepts that move together and that are highly correlated. So I just, I really liked that. Yeah. Claire, any thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to say, I appreciate your comment about um, balancing, not just managing up, but then also being extremely supportive and promoting your team, right, within the organization. So any kind of words of wisdom on how to, to balance that, especially for those that might be newer to managing a team? Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's so little training given to people when they take on people management. Like there are people who are great rock stars and individual contributors, and then you give them a team and they really struggle. Um, And it's something that I, I guess there are two things like I always sort of think about as a leader is, one is, you know, this was even since like high school, I remember this. Like if, if you are, you know, I don't know, in the desert and you come, come up to like an oasis of water, (laughs) you as a leader don't take the water first, right? Like you make sure every single person who is in your group gets water and then you take the water last. And I've always sort of kind of believed in that sort of servant leadership style. And then I've also had a person um, early on in my career, and I I think it's good to find mentors, but I remember one of my leaders said, uh, one of my managers said to me, look, I'm going to let you run with this. Um, but I'm never going to let you fail. I'm going to let you like go out on that branch. No, I'll always be there to catch you. And I would never put you in a situation where you're going to just completely fall and fail. And so I like also to give the people who report to me that my teams, that ability to stretch and grow and try something they haven't tried, but I will never put them in a situation that we couldn't recover from or that I couldn't come in and sort of fix if we had to, right? There's always sort of a like, yeah, this this is like the right amount of like stretch and like we can recover if something really goes haywire. So um, so I, I think for like new managers, it's really good to find a mentor. It's really good to find other people who are well-known, you know, for being good people managers. Um, I think it's really good to listen to your people. There are a lot of managers that manage up And while it's important to know what the mandates are coming from senior leadership, the CEO suite, the board, part of your role is to figure out like, how do you make that 
applicable to your group and also help your group be as productive and efficient and, um, and you know, sort of, I don't want to say like happy, but, you know, enjoy doing what they do. Because I, I do think like people will, people will definitely follow you out of fear, but way more people will follow you out of respect and, and, you know, caring that you show as a leader. And a method I remember, like there were people, <laughs> there were people who would come to me for advice, like all over the, like, they weren't just in product, like they're all over the place, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so I think, um, you know, I, I do, I do think like there probably needs to be more training for, you know, early people managers, but finding mentors and then, and then finding out what makes each one of your people tick. How do you build on their strengths? How do you identify the weaknesses and give them some act actionable things to do to kind of like practice on those without mm -hmm. completely, you know, failing is, is important, you know? So yeah, I always believe in giving people show, show me what you can do. Like, yeah. I'm not going to assume you can't do it. So like, show me yeah. what you can do and we'll course correct. There's usually a nugget of something in there and you can just course correct people. Yeah. That's great. I am all ears for this. I'm recently a people manager of three young professionals that are fantastic people. So um, I'm soaking this, this in entirely. So <laughs> thank you. Um, so the next question we have for you, Akemi, is as a female in the industry, um, what has your experience been um, just representing as a female, um, even more so maybe particularly while in CPG? Um, and what would you like to see differently going forward, if anything? That's a good question. I, mean, I, I think still uh, chemicals for sure, uh, but CPG, even even CPG, which which you think the consumers tend to be like more women maybe than men, uh, sure. is still like very male dominated. You know, especially at the leadership levels. So you know, I would like to see more women in leadership positions and and in in um, in you know positions that are traditionally held by men too um you know you often see women and, and this would go all the way up to like the board level like i'd love to see more women on boards um just because i think women just they bring like a very different perspective to the table there's a different communication style um there's a different way of listening you know that that i think like women afford um and you know often you see women in organizations that are like in HR functions. Um, sometimes you see them in R&D. Um, sometimes you see them in finance, but like you don't often see them on product supply. Product supply in particular is pretty male dominated. Um, so it'd be, uh, it'd, it'd be great to just see more women sort of moving into some of those, you know, traditionally male roles and it's just that it it just it just gives a there's like a different tenor to the conversation it's really interesting I mean like when you bring a woman into the, a forum especially if you're having like a really heated product supply argument and then a, a woman comes in like everyone just sort of like stops for a minute and there's a slightly different tenor um I mean I've had my share of people like yelling at me because they were mad about I mean I've People walk out of rooms. It's like it happens, um, and I think it helps women because I think it also helps women to understand that kind of communication 
there is a, a thick skin that you may have to develop. So as much as like there's an opportunity for women to bring a different communication style, a, a different type of active listening and a different energy to the room. Um, there's something to be said for like understanding like how some of those like power broker conversations are happening, right? And like, what's the language? What's the, what's the body language and positioning? Um, there's like weird other stuff that kind of goes on that that's sort of like, I think, unless you're in the room, like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to explain to people. And the more women are, uh, see that, the more they can figure out, you know, how do we have that seat at the table? You know, mm-hmm. and not just have the seat at the table, have a voice and influence and, um, you know, and, and are listened to. Mm-hmm. So. Claire, Amelia, any comments? I think it's really interesting and my wheels are turning a little bit as you speak about how women change the tenor and the tune of some of these like more difficult conversations and you mentioned how some of these power broker conversations happen and like a little bit, you have to just play the game. And we've been thinking a lot at Women in Chemicals about currently a lot of our programming is around retaining women that we have in the industry, but we want to set up programming around developing the next generation of leaders. And I think women influence in a very different way. Yeah. And as we reach more of a critical mass of women in leadership roles, I'm wondering how are these power broker type of conversations going to change? Because women can be power brokers. We just do it a little bit differently. And it's funny, I think women get dubbed a lot for being like super emotional, but every high emotion interaction I've ever had in a business setting has not been with a woman. Um, So just the evolution really of, maybe some of these more high intensity conversations or decisions as we get more women in leadership roles, I think will be really interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, and I'd echo the same thing. I think like the really emotional, like where people have walked out or like mm-hmm. dramatic, like we're not women, <laughs> they were not women. Like it was, it's really interesting, you know? So uh, yeah, I, I think the other thing um, for more women as they move higher, higher up in an organization is to the, the soft skills are really important and the, I hate to say it, but like understanding the politics of decision-making is also really important, you know? So, um, you know, making sure you understand like every organization kind of makes decisions differently and they're looking for different input for different people. And so like understanding some of the, some of the soft skills and like where you can influence and how you can influence and if you influence differently um, where that fits in is actually, I, I think, also really helpful and important because I think people discount that a lot. But, you know, hey, let's go get coffee. Or, like, let's go take a walk oh, up or down. Right. Like is a really interesting way to to talk about stuff that's going on in the organization that's um, not as charged, maybe, you know, and, and is, is a little bit of a, 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 a different way, you know, to get useful information and, and figure out how you can help and, and move things along. Cause you, you'll find out what's really blocking sometimes stuff uh, that way um, versus getting people in a room and being like, you know, <laughs> leaning over on the desk and that, you know, it's like, like, let's, let's go take a walk. Like what's going on? 
you know? So, um, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see as women get higher up, like how, how it shifts from being a very, um, uh, I don't know, it's almost like a, not declarative, but just like a, um, sort of dominant submissive relationship to being a little bit more collaborative um yeah conversation well one point you mentioned there and just it's like the the different ways people influence and the ways that um decisions are made in an organization something I recently realized in my career and I think this plays a lot into it is the context with which decisions are being made so who's in the room yeah what the setting of the decision is how many other folks are listening or putting input in. Um, I found really changes a lot of the decisions made in my organization. So that's been a huge learning for me recently. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So I have a a question I'm very interested to hear more about, um, Akemi. So we talk about your personality style and it seems very all in to what you do and very embracing of what you, you are passionate about. So, um, and that seems to attribute to your key success and growth, not only within the industry, but also led you to achieve a very unique and impressive award. And that is an Emmy for a film that you made. So I have two questions for you. Firstly, can you please tell us about this experience? And secondly, how has your all-in personality you know, developed over time? Is it something that's innate in you or is this a mindset that you've developed over time? Yeah, um, I, I think it's always been there. It's like I've, I'm a uh, firstborn of four. So I've always been kind of like the eldest child. I probably have like a lot of those like kind of type A traits. So I, everything I do is sort of like, it's, it, I don't know why. I just feel like it's not worth doing unless it's like good. <laughs> uh, so I had this side hustle, it's not a side hustle, a side project. Um, where my, my father, um, was interned in the, uh, the internment camps in the, uh, during World War II. So he's Japanese American, he's American citizen born in LA. Um, and he's in a really famous picture of three boys behind barbed wire. And, um, a few years ago, we had this kind of crazy idea, like, let's, we found the other two boys and they're still alive. They were all in their eighties. And we we happen to be, having kind of a family reunion for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And we said, you know, we've got all the kids together, all the family together. We've never been to Manzanar, which is where my father had been interned. We'd never been there as a family. And so maybe we should go. And I said, you know, I, I think I'd like to record this with video for posterity, but not one of us recording it, you know, because then you're not really present because you're trying to capture with your iPhone. And I happened to um, meet another mother in my daughter's preschool class who turned out to be a documentary filmmaker. Um, and I, I was like, this is crazy. And I, I said, I have this idea and, you know, long story short, she, we ended up collaborating and we, I ended up being the executive producer in this film and we made this seven minute, six and a half, seven minute short documentary about the reunion of these three boys, um, who hadn't seen each other for, I don't know, 70 years, you know, since they left the camp. Um, and it was incredibly moving um we had shared it on the film festival circuit for a while and then it was picked up by a pbs station up in sacramento Mm -hmm. and they showed it and then came back to us and said you know like have you shown this anywhere and we said no and they said you should we're not going to make any promises but like you should apply for an emmy (laughs) and so 
we did, I'm now a member of like the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. We applied for an Emmy and just this last, um, this last cycle, we, we found out we won uh, an Emmy for, um, for the film. I can show you. Please. Yeah, I have like, it's like, it's legit. Like it's big and heavy. You would have, here it is. <laughs> oh my gosh. A real thing. Um, I, and it was, I know we're virtual, Akemi, but I've never been this close to an Emmy before. This is very yeah, cool. I feel like we're like in the room with a celebrity. <laughs> uh, so the film's called Three Boys Manzanar. Um, I'm happy to share it with you. You can share it with your, um, your organization. And, uh, you know, the labor of love. And I, I think the all in nature of like, like, we're not just going to do this small. We're going to do something that is in the end, like a beautiful film. The cinematography is amazing. The, the sound engineering was great. Um, I did all the narration off the cuff really. And, um, and you know, the director Preeti uh, Deb was fantastic. So uh, yeah, the all in just in my side hustle turned into an Emmy, which is kind of like crazy. Very on brand with this personality trait. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. I already Googled the link. I've got it up. So I'm going <laughs> to do that in my free time here. So we always wrap up these conversations that come with the opportunity for you to share any closing comments, advice, any good books you're reading or podcasts you want our community to be aware of, um, really anything that's inspiring to you. So I'll let you do that now. Sure. Um, I would say, you know, for women in, uh, entering whether it's chemistry, CPG, STEM, find your mentors in the industry, you know, be open, learn from the people who came before you and do not be afraid to ask for help. Early on in my career, I asked all kinds of stuff because like I didn't, no one teaches you really about CPG before you get into it. You have to learn on the job. And I would just often ask suppliers, you know, um, how do I think about this? Um, so I think like, just find your people um, and keep those relationships strong. Um, a couple, like there's a book that I, 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 every time I start a new company, I've read this book because I, it's just a good reminder. It's called The First 90 Days by Michael D. Watkins. It's just like a good one that sort of, again, like it crystallizes this idea, like figure out, like in the first 90 days, you have this window of opportunity to figure out how your company operates, figure out how decisions are made, set your personal goals and like what things you think you can achieve so that mm -hmm. you can make an impact right away. And that often is like, you know, those first impressions sort of set you on a course, like within an organization. So I, I always kind of recommend that book. Um, the other thing is that there's a podcast I like to listen to, like if I'm walking, it's called How to Be Awesome at Your Job. It's by uh, Pete Mikaitis. And it's just like every week, I think there's like somebody new that he's interviewed, maybe it's twice a week. And there's some like really interesting nuggets in there. You know, these are people who have written books or they give talks or whatever. And um, I found like just some really interesting nuggets. And there was a woman on recently who talked, she, she, one of her, she wrote a book and one of the chapters is called plan on Fridays. And I was like, what is she talking about? She's like, no plan on Fridays. Meaning your Friday afternoon is like, you're tired. You're like, what am I going to do? And she's like, use that time to plan the rest of your week. Right. So you don't have to do it Sunday night. You don't have to do it Monday morning. Plan yeah. it on Fridays. You're kind of in the moment. If you need to reach out to somebody, people are still kind of working Friday afternoon, like they're responsive maybe. So 
you know, there's some like really interesting nuggets in, in that uh, podcast, how to be awesome at your job. And then as I got, um, the last thing I'd say is like, as I got further on in my career, I actually did some coaching. And so I, um, I attended a class called Awaken Your Life. And it was like this women, women's focused group. And it was largely for women who were um, pretty far along in their careers, like maybe certain experience burnout. And this was like COVID was happening. And I was like, this is crazy. Um, but that was actually super empowering because it gave me this focused time and energy to work on what are my like big goals? How do I think about, um, you know, implementing them over the course of like a 12 month period? So like, what do I want to do? Like, what are some you know, traps or tropes or things that I've kind of fallen into over the years that are sort of crutches for me that I can like walk away from and, and leave behind. So, um, and, and how to, how to make yourself a little open to mm-hmm. accepting kind of things that are sort of coming your way. You, you, as you get further along in your career, there are things you can control, but you almost have to be like more open in a way and more receptive because there's so many more people either under your purview or so many more dollars under your purview. And so, uh, so I, I just found that to be really helpful too, to like start to, to get um, connected with a community of, of women, not unlike I think women in chemicals who have really similar um, interests and ambitions and challenges and, and the camaraderie and, um, and sort of support that women give each other is, is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And that was, uh, really, really a, a good, um, you know, a, a good activity that I, I treated myself to in a way. <laughs> I'm do that enough either. Absolutely. Well, I've bolded and highlighted and already pinged Amelia about some of these uh, recommendations for <laughs> myself and for our community. So uh, really excited to dig into all of these. And Akemi, just really thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to get to know you uh, and learn from you and learn from your experiences. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, always happy to, to help and answer any other questions. So thank you very much.